0: Chapter Twenty Five, Part Three of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Five Louis the Eleventh, Fourteen Sixty One to Fourteen Eighty Three, Part Three. Louis, meanwhile, after passing a day at Corbeil, had once more, on the 18th of July, entered Paris, the object of his chief solicitude. He dismounted at his lieutenants, the sire de Mimes, and asked for some supper. Several persons, Burgesses and their wives, took supper with him. He excited their lively interest by describing to them the Battle of Monterry, the danger he had run there, and the scenes which had been enacted, adopting at one time a pathetic and at another a bantering tone, and exciting by turns the emotion and the laughter of his audience. In three days, he said, he would return to fight his enemies, in order to finish the war, but he had not enough of men-at-arms, and all had not at that moment such good spirits as he. He passed a fortnight in Paris, devoting himself solely to the task of winning the hearts of the Parisians, reducing imposts, giving audience to everybody, lending a favorable ear to every opinion offered him, making no inquiry as to who had been more or less faithful to him, showing clemency without appearing to be aware of it, and not punishing with severity even those who had served as guides to the Burgundians in the pillaging of the villages around Paris. A crier of the Châtelet, who had gone crying about the streets the day on which the Burgundians attacked the gate of Saint-Denis, was sentenced only to a month's imprisonment, bread and water, and a flogging. He was marched through the city in a nightman's cart, and the king, meeting the procession, called out as he passed to the executioner, "'Strike hard, and spare not that ribald. "'He has well deserved it.'" Meanwhile, the Burgundians were approaching Paris and pressing it more closely every day. Their different allies in the league were coming up with troops to join him, including even some of those who, after having suffered suffered reverses in Auvergne, had concluded truces with the king, the forces scattered around Paris amounted, it is said, to fifty thousand men, and occupied Charenton, Conflon, Saint-Mar, and Saint-Denis, making ready for a serious attack upon the place. Louis, notwithstanding his firm persuasion that things always went ill whenever he was not present in person, left Paris for Rouen, to call out and bring up the regulars and reserves of Normandy. In his absence, interviews and parleys took place between besiegers and besieged. The former found partisans among the inhabitants of Paris, in the Hôtel de Ville itself. The Count de Dunois made capital of all the grievances of the League against the king's government, and declared that, if the city refused to receive the princes, the authors of this refusal would have to answer for whatever misery, loss, and damage might come of it. And in spite of all efforts on the part of the king's officers and friends, some wavering was manifested in certain quarters. But there arrived from Normandy considerable reinforcements— announcing the early return of the king. And, in fact, he entered Paris on the 28th of August, the mass of the people testifying their joy and singing Noël. Louis made as if he knew nothing of what had happened in his absence, and gave nobody a black look. Only four or five burgesses, too much compromised by their relations with the besiegers, were banished to Orléans. Sharp skirmishes were frequent all round the place. There was cannonading on both sides— and some balls from Paris came tumbling about the quarters of the Count of Carolet, and killed a few of his people before his very door. But Louis did not care to risk a battle. He was much impressed by the enemy's strength, and by the weakness of which glimpses had been seen in Paris during his absence. Whilst men of war were fighting here and there, he opened negotiations. Local and temporary truces were accepted, and agents of the king had conferences with others from the chiefs of the league. The princes showed so exacting a spirit that there was no treating on such conditions, and Louis determined to see whether he could not succeed better than his agents. He had an interview of two hours' duration in front of the St. Anthony gate, with the Count of Saint-Puy, a confidant of the Count of Carollet. On his return he found before the gate some burgesses waiting for news. "'Well, my friends,' said he, "'the Burgundians will not give you so much trouble any more as they have given you in the past.' That is all very well, sir, replied an attorney of the Châtelet, but meanwhile they eat our grapes and gather our vintage without any hindrance. Still, said the king, that is better than if they were to come and drink your wine in your cellars. The month of September passed thus in parleys without result. Bad news came for Rouen. The League had a party in that city. Louis felt that the Count of Carolet was the real head of the opposition, and the only one with whom anything definite could be arrived at. He resolved to make a direct attempt upon him, for he had confidence in the influence he could obtain over people when he chatted and treated in person with them. One day he got aboard of a little boat with five or six of his officers, and went over to the left bank of the Seine. There the Count of Carollet was awaiting him. "'Will you insure me, brother?' said the King, as he stepped ashore. "'Yes, my lord, as a brother,' said the Count. The King embraced him and went on. "'I quite see, brother, that you are a gentleman and of the House of France.' "'How so, my lord? When I sent my ambassadors lately, in 1464, to Lille, on an errand to my uncle, your father, and yourself, and when my Chancellor, that fool of a Morvillier, made you such a fine speech, you sent me word by the Archbishop of Narbonne that I should repent me of the words spoken to you by that Montvillier, and that before a year was over. Pique Dieu, you've kept your promise, and before the end of the year has come. I like to have to do with folks who hold to what they promise.' This he said laughingly, knowing well that this language was just the sort of flattery to touch the Count of Carollet. They walked for a long while together on the river's bank, to the great curiosity of their people, who were surprised to see them conversing on such good terms. They talked of possible conditions of peace, both of them displaying considerable pliancy, save the king touching the Duchy of Normandy, which he would not at any price, he said, confer on his brother the Duke of Berry and the Count of Carolet touching his enmity towards the house of Croix, with which he was determined not to be reconciled. At parting, the king invited the Count to Paris, where he would make him great cheer. "'My lord,' said Charles, "'I have made a vow not to enter any good town until my return.' The king smiled, gave fifty golden crowns for distribution, to drink his health, amongst the Count's archers, and once more got aboard of his boat. Shortly after getting back to Paris he learned that Normandy was lost to him the widow of the Seneschal de Brise, lately killed at Montherie, forgetful of all the king's kindnesses and against the will of her own son, whom Louis had appointed Seneschal of Normandy after his father's death, had just handed over Rouen to the Duke of Bourbon, one of the most determined chiefs of the league. Louis at once took his course. He sent to demand an interview with the Count of Carolet, and repaired to Conflans with a hundred Scots of his guard. There was a second edition of the walk together." Charles knew nothing as yet about the surrender of Rouen, and Louis lost no time in telling him of it before he had leisure for reflection, and for magnifying his pretensions. Since the Normans, said he, have of themselves felt disposed for such a novelty, so be it. I should never of my own free will have conferred such an appanage on my brother, but as the thing is done, I give my consent. And he at the same time assented to all the other conditions which had formed the subject of conversation." In proportion to the resignation displayed by the king was the joy of the Count of Carolet at seeing himself so near to peace. Everything was going wrong with his army. Provisions were short, murmurs and dissensions were setting in, and the League of Commonweal was on the point of ending in a shameful catastrophe. Whilst strolling and conversing with cordiality, the two princes kept advancing towards Paris. Without noticing it, they passed within the entrance of a strong palisade, which the king had caused to be erected in front of the city walls and which marked the boundary line. All on a sudden they stopped, both of them, disconcerted. The Burgundian found himself within the hostile camp, but he kept a good countenance, and simply continued the conversation. Amongst his army, however, when he was observed to be away so long, there was already a feeling of deep anxiety. The chieftains had met together. "'If this young prince,' said the Marshal of Burgundy, "'has gone to his own ruin like a fool, let us not ruin his house.' let every man retire to his quarters, and hold himself in readiness without disturbing himself about what may happen. By keeping together we are in a condition to fall back on the marches of Hanault, Picardy, or Burgundy. The veteran warrior mounted his horse and rode forward in the direction of Paris to see whether Count Charles were coming back or not. It was not long before he saw a troop of forty or fifty horse moving towards him. They were the Burgundian prince and an escort of the king's own guard. Charles dismissed the escort, and came up to the marshal, saying, Don't say a word. I acknowledge my folly, but I saw it too late. I was already close to the works. Everybody can see that I was not there, said the marshal. If I had been, it would never have happened. You know, your highness, that I am only on loan to you, as long as your father lives. Charles made no reply, and returned to his own camp, where all congratulated him, and rendered homage to the king's honorable conduct. Negotiations for peace were opened forthwith. There was no difficulty about them. Louis was ready to make sacrifices as soon as he recognized the necessity for them, being quite determined, however, in his heart, to recall them as soon as fortune came back to him. Two distinct treaties were concluded, one at Conflans on the 5th of October 1455, between Louis and the Count of Carolet, and the other at St. Mar, on the twenty-ninth of October, between Louis and the other princes of the League. By one or the other of the treaties the king granted nearly every demand that had been made upon him. To the Count of Carollet he gave up all the towns of importance in Picardy. To the Duke of Berry, he gave the Duchy of Normandy, with entire sovereignty, and the other princes, independently of the different territories that had been conceded to them, all received large sums in ready money. The conditions of peace had already been agreed to, when the Burgundians went so far as to summon, into the bargain, the strong place of Beauvais. Louis quietly complained to Charles. "'If you wanted this town,' said he, "'you should have asked me for it, "'and I would have given it to you. "'But peace is made, and it ought to be observed.' Charles openly disavowed the deed. When peace was proclaimed, on the 30th of October, the king went to Vincennes to receive the homage of his brother Charles for the Duchy of Normandy, and that of the Count of Carollet for the lands of Picardy. The count asked the king to give up to him, for that day the castle of Vincennes for the security of all. Louis made no objection, and the gates and apartments of the castle were guarded by the Count's own people. But the Parisians, whose favor Louis had won, were alarmed on his account. Twenty-two thousand men of the city militia marched towards the outskirts of Vincennes, and obliged the king to return and sleep at Paris. He went almost alone to the grand review which the Count of Carollet held of his army before giving word for marching away, and passed from rank to rank, speaking graciously to his late enemy. THE KING AND THE COUNT, ON SEPARATING, EMBRACED ONE ANOTHER, THE COUNT SAYING, IN A LOUD VOICE, GENTLEMEN, YOU AND I ARE AT THE COMMAND OF THE KING, MY SOVEREIGN LORD, WHO IS HERE PRESENT, TO SERVE HIM WHENSOEVER THERE SHALL BE NEED. WHEN THE TREATIES OF CONFLON AND ST. MAR WERE PUT BEFORE THE PARLIAMENT TO BE REGISTERED, THE PARLIAMENT AT FIRST REFUSED, AND THE Exchequer CHAMBER FOLLOWED SUIT. BUT THE KING INSISTED IN THE NAME OF NECESSITY, AND THE REGISTRATION TOOK PLACE, SUBJECT TO A DECLARATION ON THE PART OF THE PARLIAMENT THAT IT WAS FORCED TO OBEY. Louis, at bottom, was not sorry for this resistance, and himself made a secret protest against the treaties he had just signed. At the outset of the negotiations it had been agreed that thirty-six notables, twelve prelates, twelve knights, and twelve members of the council, should assemble to inquire into the errors committed in the government of the kingdom, and to apply remedies. They were to meet on the 15th of December, and to have terminated their labors in two months at the least, and in three months and ten days at the most the king promised on his word to abide firmly and stably by what they should decree. But this commission was nearly a year behind time in assembling, and even when it was assembled, its labors were so slow and so futile, that the Count de Dantmartin was quite justified in writing to the Count of Carolet, become by his father's death Duke of Burgundy, the League of Common Weal has become nothing but the League of Common Woe. Scarcely were the treaties signed and the princes returned, each to his own dominions, when a quarrel arose between the Duke of Brittany and the new Duke of Normandy. Louis, who was watching for dissensions between his enemies, went at once to see the Duke of Brittany, and made with him a private convention for mutual security. Then, having his movements free, he suddenly entered Normandy to retake possession of it as a province which, notwithstanding the cession of it just made to his brother, the King of France could not dispense with. Evreux, Gisors, Gournay, Louvier, and even Rouen fell, without much resistance, again into his power. The Duke of Berry made a vigorous appeal for support to his late ally, the Duke of Burgundy, in order to remain master of the new duchy which had been conferred upon him under the late treaties. The Count of Carollet was at that time taking up, little by little, the government of the Burgundian dominions in the name of his father, the aged Duke Philip, who was ill and near his end. But by pleading his own engagements, and especially his ever-renewed struggle with his Flemish subjects, the Liges, The Count escaped from the necessity of satisfying the Duke of Berry. End of chapter 25, part 3